Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to roll please the 50th episode of local zero how time flies when you're having fun eh becky <laughs> yeah um well look to mark the occasion we'll be exploring what a smarter more local energy system might look like and feel like for us all and as some of you might be aware last week we recorded our second ever local zero live podcast we did this one in london and thank you again to all of our contributors You can listen to the live record wherever you get your Local Zero podcast. It's on there. It's come out as one of our usual podcasts. And it is and was a very fun episode to record, wasn't it, Matt? We had a lot of fun, absolutely. But today, and in fact, joining us at the summit last week, last episode, was Jeremy Yap, a very vocal and engaged member of of the summit and the audience. And he's joining us today to kind of reflect a bit on the summit. Jeremy is head of flexible energy systems at this is a bit of a mouthful, the British Electrotechnical and Allied Manufacturers Association, or conveniently, BEMA for short. The benefit of the smart metering program at the, in the early days, some people couldn't believe they were now able to budget to the extent that, yes, I can give my child fish fingers tonight because I know exactly how much I've got on my meter and I know how much I've got left. BEMA are the UK's trade association for energy infrastructure companies and really they're working with manufacturers uh, to deliver a safe, low carbon, reliable and smart energy system. So Jeremy has a lot of thoughts, hoping to hear more today. Absolutely. And before we get into our discussions, do remember to, to join us on social media. So if you haven't already, find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with the discussions there. You can also email us, localzeropod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you all. And do remember to subscribe to the podcast, whichever platform you use for your podcast, Apple, Spotify, any of them, go there and subscribe. And that way you'll get these wonderful episodes of Local Zero delivered straight to your device whenever we release them. So Becky, the big 5-0, how does it feel? Wow. Do you know what, Matt? So this year I'm also like on a personal note, I'm turning 40. So it feels very exciting to have oh so many big two, um, two milestones two yeah. milestones happening within like a month of uh, one another. No, it's so exciting that, that this is our 50th episode. And as you said, like time has flown. Like we started yeah. this in the run up to COP, a year to go to COP. That was yeah. quite a long time ago, but it doesn't and, and feel like And it was that. in the, the darkest depths of the pandemic as well. Yeah, so, you know, it was something I think for us to kind of sink our teeth into during that really difficult and quite isolating time. It was lovely to have have that. And, you know, huge shout out to, to the whole team. Fraser can't be with us today, sadly, uh, but to our production team, Dave, Karis, also Patrick. And actually Patrick's been really busy on pulling together a kind of, a kind of back catalogue, the greatest hits, I like to call it, of, of all of our episodes, <laughs> which are on our website, localzeropod.com. Um, and if you go on there, you can just kind of type in any subject that you're broadly interested in, assuming it's related to what we, we've covered, and they'll just pop up. It's great. Really useful resource um, for teaching, learning, uh, just, just general kind of knowledge. So uh, yeah, check it out. 
Absolutely. And while we're on uh, topics that are interesting to us, why don't we pick up on EVs, Matt? Because this is a topic very close to your heart right now. Well, yeah. So I've been spending a bit of time. Like, So I, I drive around in a uh, uh, not, not too old, sort of four years old, five years old uh, um, VW estate. It's a, it's a diesel, right? We've got the one car. We don't want to for obvious reasons. But I would love to go EV. Um but I'm, I'm kind of begrudgingly drawing the conclusion that I just can't afford one. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not rich, I'm not poor, um, but I'm very much kind of in that, in that middle bracket. I'm thinking, well, if I'm kind of struggling to reach and, you know, get this, I'm just thinking the bulk of the population are, are not going to be there. And so, you know, I'm starting to kind of go full circle, looking at plug-in hybrids and wondering what they might do. Do I stick with the diesel if I sell it? somebody else going to drive it to death? You know, maybe a taxi driver might pick it up and drive it four times as hard as I would every day. Um, I've found the whole journey really, really complex. And I would like to think that I spend most of my waking hours kind of working and thinking about this stuff anyway. So it's been been, been an eye opener, been a real eye opener. Yeah. I mean, for for me, because obviously I, I do have an EV and the only reason that I was able to have the EV is because it's through a company scheme. And so the salary yeah. sacrifice schemes are make make it not um, kind of out of the reach from an expense perspective, but it's a different model. So you don't own a car like like you would otherwise, you know, we've got it for three years and then then it goes back. Because yeah. um, I'm in the same boat as, as you, Matt said, the actual cost if I would have bought my EV, it's worth 600 times, oh no, uh, yeah, 600 times more, I think, than my actual car was that we sold. So, wow. yeah, so it's not... Were you in like a Fred Flintstone car? So a little you, bit, a little bit. So I'm pretty sure it was sort of uh, sold. Yeah. I don't know how much longer it'll be on the road. But No, but they're, pri- I, they're pricey. I they're mean, they pricey. really are. Some of the stuff that's coming on, you know, t- you're typical, particularly if you wanted to get something that's, you know, German engineered, dare we say it, um, you know, you are paying big money. You are paying big money. Do you know what though? It very interestingly, I was uh, having a lot of conversations about EVs with the cab drivers in London. So when we were there for our for our summit a couple of weeks back, yeah, um, I had to take a few taxis because I was lugging around a massive suitcase. Not the tube isn't the friendliest place to be doing that. Um, and so I took a few taxis, and and in fact, both taxis that I took were full electric vehicles. And I, had, oh, I haven't been in one yet. Are, are they good? Um, so, so they are good. I, I would say you probably may have been in one and not even known mm. because for most purposes, they look the same. I only knew because I got into very engaged um, conversations with the drivers. But uh, they were both telling me about, you know, from a from a financial perspective, I think it's a, it's a different kettle of fish. Yeah. But there are so many other barriers that, that they are facing, particularly around access to charging infrastructure. It's just not there. Even in London, when they, they were, both of them were telling me their experiences of pulling up or wanting to be able to charge during the day, because obviously they do a lot of miles. And almost always the charges are taken up by other cars or, or, or broken. And I have to say my experience as well, because I've done some long journeys in my EV, has been very similar. The, the, the infrastructure, when I can charge at home and drive around from home, great yeah yeah it's the longer journeys yeah it is yeah absolutely oh my goodness we have had a late entry uh fraser you've snuck in through the back door we've made your apologies but you're here how are you i am i am marvelous i'm marvelous how are, how are you guys we're good we're good we've just been shooting the breeze and we were about to move on to the price cap which has been obviously big news apart from um the death of the Queen, which has consumed, you know, all, all all news outlets for the last 10, 14 days. But it was just being announced when, uh, sadly, the passing of the Queen was announced at the same, same time. But now we know some of the details, just sort of mulling this over. I mean, Fraser, you're probably knee-deep in this with your own work. I think it's it's the classic, we welcome the support, we welcome the measures, it will do some good. However, as a, now bear in mind, there are lots of caveats to this and lots of details, but a a capped rate of of £2,500 per year is still double what it was this time last year. Now, this time last year, I've said on the pod before, when we were, anyone working in fuel poverty, worried that the price of energy exceeded £1,000 a year, right? Most vulnerable people, lowest income people were already in trouble at that rate. So when it hit £1,900 at the start of this year, we thought, Oh dear, this is going to be this is going to be horrendous, and it was. A lot of people are very much down the hole with this now. Mm. 
So our thinking was that, okay, well, at least if we can stop it at 1900, then maybe a lot of these people have a fighting chance. 2,500, it's much better than the 3,500 or even the 5,000 that was predicted for, you know, January into, into April time. But it's still a lot of money. And there are still a lot of people who are already in trouble because of the rising prices, uh, the rising costs of energy, the rising costs of gas. And it will do little to to alleviate a lot of the pressures and a, a lot of the, the spiral of hardship that's already kicked off mm. for a lot of people. So welcome the cap. Absolutely, two thousand five hundred is better than nothing. Um, but we're going to need we're going to need to see a, a, a fair bit more if we're going to really tackle the, the scale of the problem. As I said, that's one of the most measured responses I think I've ever heard from Fraser in my lifetime. You don't let me swear on this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> you have, yeah, the producers have had a word. Um, I mean, you know, the Resolution Foundation, who've been been really great commentators throughout this energy crisis, have come out and basically said this is a regressive approach. It before. Trust's government came in, um, and you know, we we can and have said what we like about the previous administration, but um, you could argue that Sunak's approach as chancellor was much more progressive in terms of targeting support at those who most needed it, whether it was through council tax, disability benefits, whether it was through um, universal credit and, and, you know, sort of uplift around those benefits. Here, it's just a sort of blanket cap. So the Resolution Foundation have basically said the richest households are going to get sort of on average twice the living support than the poorest households. But objectively, put your politics, leave your politics at the door. Objectively, that doesn't sound very fair. It doesn't sound very fair, especially when this is a measure that is really being introduced to help address some of those poorest households. It feels like, as you said, a blanket measure that hasn't been particularly well thought through and the implications of that haven't been particularly well thought through. And I think something else that just that really, really frustrates me and it continues to frustrate me is the lack of kind of big picture thinking when it comes to the design of a whole lot of policies. And a lot of the design feels very... um, linear and almost kind of, you know, we do this and this will happen or this is a problem and this will happen. Yeah. Rushed, rushed, Rushed. but it doesn't, it doesn't think about all of the, and it's going to be an absolute terrible time for a lot of people. And I Mm. want to acknowledge that, but let's just bring it back to finances, which we know that this government cares a lot about. If we're just talking about it from a financial perspective, think about all of the additional costs that are going to be incurred by our health system, simply because of people becoming sick living in cold homes that if a clever if a smarter policy was developed that could target that it's almost like there's these two separate systems that aren't being brought together when they're you know in the thinking and in policy design and it's just Quite, quite quite agree i mean the fact that we don't think about fuel poverty and the nhs in the same sentences is madness because the the strain that it places but listen everything's okay because fracking's back Fracking is back, baby, oh, and it's bigger than ever. Today, we've had you know, various announcements, of lifting of moratoriums. But look, I, I have personal views, but you know, professionally on this, a fascinating uh, piece came out in The Guardian yesterday from Chris Cornelius, who is the geologist who founded Quadrilla. Uh, Quadrilla goes hand in hand with fracking. Basically said, it ain't ever going to happen in the UK because the, the subsurface, uh, the geology is, is just not suitable for this like the US. And that lifting the cap was a political gesture. Fascinating piece. Of course it what was. What are your take? Of course it uh, was. So it's a political gesture just as the appointment of the new head of base is a political gesture. Absolutely. That's what this is in its entirety. Fracking, I, I, I like that. I like that extremely practical, physical, this just won't work approach to it. It also, as any kind of solution to the crisis, to energy security, to resilience, it's a nonsense solution, right? It's way too long term. Nobody actually wants it. Communities don't want it. People don't want it in their in their back gardens. There's no real support for it. So it's hard to, to figure out. There's also no real huge economic benefit to it compared to if you want to get, you know, shovel-ready renewable projects in the ground 24, 25, 26, rather than 24, 25, 26 years down the line. So it's hard to think of it as anything other than someone coming into a new post trying to rile people up or making a signal to 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 those kinds of companies that actually we've still got your back on this. Does this speak to the fact that the response that we're seeing just now to the energy crisis and to the the, the medium and longer term security of the energy system just hasn't been thought through, it hasn't been joined up, it really isn't something that we can 
rest our, our laurels on just now. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, to lift the moratorium on fracking and not onshore wind feels like madness to me. To not be putting in place better measures to support local action around efficiency, retrofit, heating feels like madness to me. In some ways, I'm just not surprised. Oh, no. And I'm not disappointed because I didn't expect anything yeah. better. Uh but what this really does for me is emphasize the importance of local action, the role of local authorities and the role of really innovative companies like Octopus, who I know you want to talk about, Matt. Well, yeah, so I think the, the watchword, and we're about to hear, as, as we're recording, I think the, the mini budget, they're calling it a mini budget, but it might as well be a, a mega budget um, from uh, Kwasi Kwarteng. I think tomorrow, but um, you know the watchword is growth, growth, growth. I've said the watchword three times just to emphasise it, and and it's about sort of free market rules. Just like take the brakes off, cut the red tape. Let's see where it goes. Now, octopus are an interesting example of how you how you can do really exciting things through the market. And I was keeping a note of some of the smart export guarantee prices, basically the price you get as a household for exporting excess solar. And um, that when this came in, when they scrapped the feed-in tariff back in 2019, shortly after that smart export guarantee was was uh, came into effect when electricity prices were relatively low and you're only getting maybe four, five, six pence per kilowatt hour. They're now offering, and this is a, a flat rate, a guaranteed rate of 15 pence. So it's tripled in that time. And if you're willing to go onto their agile tariff and take the, the market price, that can be much, much higher, particularly if you couple that that solar with some storage and discharge when the price is highest. Now that start, and it bleeds into what we're going to talk to Jeremy about in a moment, this bleeds into what your home might look like in the future. And I just see these signals for that 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 middle who have some capital, who are concerned about their energy prices. This is just another reason to go down that kind of microgen smart storage route i would say so yeah i would say so definitely definitely i think that's certainly we've we've all spoken on this on this amongst ourselves about people that we know who maybe hadn't considered this before are now seriously seriously looking looking into it and and before we bring jeremy in fraser you you have moved to deepest darkest um angus angus so, and you're you're in the in the sticks somewhat. Uh, are you looking at going, kind of setting up your own microgen commune? Can, can I come live there at any point in the Absolutely. not too uh, distant? Yeah, yeah, that's that's entirely the entirely the plan. Um, Great. Yeah, we've been looking into solar and stuff, and increasingly, I feel like maybe I'll just draw on my tradespeople, friends, and family, and we'll start an installation company because we cannot get anyone to come in and install this just now in this area for love nor money. But we certainly are looking into it and in terms of the cost. If you think Originally, let's take an average cost of, of £10,000 for maybe a, a four kilowatt solar installation and a, and a battery to go with it. Originally, that might have taken you seven, eight, nine years to, to recoup the, the money on. But with prices as they are just now, in terms of the, the saving that you're making, you can recoup a lot of that in three or four rather than seven or eight. It's, it feels like if you've, if you've got the, the, the privilege and the, the luxury of being able to, to do that or to finance that, then it certainly feels like, feels like a no-brainer. Well, Come the zombie apocalypse, I'm packing up the Passat and I'm making my way. Bring up it to on, yours. bring it on. I've I've built my raised beds. We've got some we've got some <laughs> nice garlic going. We'll yeah, we'll we'll make it happen. Good stuff. Yeah, unfortunately I can't stick around for the what I'm sure will be an incredible conversation today, but happy 50th episode team, and we'll catch you for, for the next 50. Hello, my name is Jeremy Yap. I am the head of flexible energy systems at BEMA, which is the Trade Association for the Energy System. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. We're so pleased to have you here. Thank you very much. Really, really good to be with you today, Becky and Matt. So I'm a uh, long-time listener, first-time caller to Local Zero podcast. So uh, this is my actually my first podcast experience, but I do listen to your podcast. So you're not just joining us on any episode. This is our 50th Local Zero episode. Get out of town. Isn't that exciting? That's great. You should feel honoured, Jeremy. I do. I do. I do feel honoured. <laughs> 
So, Jeremy, we've got to begin at the beginning, which is what is Beamer? Um, okay. And, and what is its interest in a, a smarter, more local energy system? Yeah, um, thanks, Matt. So Beamer is a trade association that's been around for, I think, more than – it's about, about 120 years or so. Um, it's a nice little – it's a nice little story. I think what happened in the late 19th or early 20th century, uh, there's a sad beginning. There was a, a, I understand that there was a terrible accident in a mine and people died. And there was a lot of talk at the time that they, there was, they were blaming this incident, this fa- these fatalities, on these newfangled electrical lighting systems that were in this coal mine, which is actually... I understand not what happened. So a lot of these companies, re- there was a there was a parliamentary inquiry, and there was all sorts of things that happened. And so these companies got together and said, right, well, we need to make a submission to government to explain that that's that it wasn't our fault. It wasn't the electric lights that caused this problem. And um, and that worked. And they realised that there were other causes of this this fatality. And at the end of it, all these companies went, well, that went well, didn't it? A little bit of evidence-based policymaking based on industry coming together to present something to government that explains why something happened. Um, And thus Beamer was born. Now, ironically, we don't do lights, but we do just about everything else in the electrical system. So plugs and sockets, are wires, all the way up to the transformers and the switch gear and the great big cables that you have in your in the network system that's so beamer represents mostly manufacturers mm-hmm. uh, some service providers in the electrotechnical space there we go there's Fantastic. our life story for you so do you find that so from very very interesting beginnings clearly those 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 companies those manufacturers were brought together by a common cause mm. do you find now with such a diversity of different organizations that are your members that you still see that common cause that coming together uh, and bringing that kind of coherent voice and and how does that play into you know i guess not the 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 transition towards electric lighting that we might have seen 120 years ago but the transitions that we're now experiencing yeah so becky i think that's changed for me in just the nine years i've been at bema so i was working for the smart metering program in the department of energy and climate change and i came over to bema which by the way is spelt b-e-a-m-a i came over to work on the smart metering program and at the time so this is nine years ago the answer to your question, Becky, would be very different, I think, to what it is now. And at the time, smart metering was still contested. So we were still developing, um, I'm not going to give you the acronym, but we were still developing the technical specifications around smart metering that would allow smart electricity and gas meters to be rolled out to 26 million homes. And what that would do is mean you no longer have to check your meter and and have someone come maybe twice a year to look at your meter and work out your bill, but you would have knowledge of your bill in real time. So you could plan your energy, you could budget your energy, you could identify whether you're using too much or whether you could afford to use more, all sorts of things like that, that the smart metering program enabled at the time, we were still working out the technical specifications for that. So I would say nine years ago, there was a lot of pull and push within the BEMA membership as to how best to go forward with this. And I'd say that there were a few doubters about the value of that smart metering program. Now, the answer to your question is, I feel like, and I'm not just saying this, I'm not here to promote BEMA. I'm here to talk about what we want to talk about. But I would say I've never seen Beamer more aligned. And now I think that do we go smart or do we not? That's a question for five, 10 years ago. Now we're talking about what's the path to net zero. Mm. It's a very, very different question. If I can come in here, I guess the the two are linked, right? So the the smart meter rollout really was about providing a, 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 a core plinth, a foundation for us to unlock smarter use smarter storage, smarter 
um, micro-generation of power in our homes and businesses. So, so you were at DEC, moved into BEMA, this kind of focus on the smart meter rollout and how we can make these homes and businesses smarter. In your eyes, what was what was and what remains the vision for a smarter energy system? Going back a decade, is the vision still the same? Are we just still on that same journey or have things kind of evolved? I think it's a really good question. And I think some things, as always, some things have stayed the same and some things have changed. I would say one of the big changes is now we are talking much more urgently and much more seriously about moving away from what at the time we thought of as a multi-vector smart system. So we actually really were talking about, I mean, a lot of the cost in the smart metering program is set up to allow you to smart meter gas as well as electricity. Now, um, others will have different views, but my view, and I think the view of many BEMA members, is that that is becoming less important. And after 2025, when it will no longer be legal to put in a gas boiler into a new build, and then as of the 2030s or 2040s, when we will see most gas boilers by then be replaced, the importance of gas metering Mm. uh, is much reduced. So in that level, I think some of the complexity disappears. But what stays the same is the same impulse, which is we want consumers to have knowledge and therefore agency and control over their energy use. And in the same way that you can always, not that everyone's on contracts these days, but in those days, you could always find out how much credit you had left on your phone, but you couldn't easily find out how much credit you had on your electricity or gas bill. Now those things are much more easy to do. I personally don't feel that that's a game changer. And I think that some of the really big things about smart metering remain unrealized, but that's for later. But the, I mean, it was such a different context because if we just go back before smart metering, I mean, I'm, I'm honestly, Jeremy, sometimes I just look in with sort of horrors probably too far, you know, too extreme, but you know, the lack of knowledge and understanding that the energy sector had about what was happening at what we now call the grid edges, right? So like mm-hmm. very, very good knowledge of what was happening along the transmission lines. I mean, that's kind of like the, the veins and arteries of the system. And very, very little knowledge of actually what was happening down at the capillaries, right? And into homes. And that was because we lived with a system where you didn't need that knowledge, right? We had that centralized generation. We could manage it in a centralized way and power went to end users and we could support a reliable energy system, a reliable, affordable energy system without needing any of that information. And I think, you know, if you look now, the context is so vastly different with distributed generation, the shift to heat pumps, the uptake of EVs, storage systems. I mean, it's such a different, such a different world. And I agree with you. It feels like, you know, the the smart metering, the access to, the access to data and data that can be delivered in real time to households, but also to other stakeholders. You know, the ability to use that to manage this much more complex dynamic system. To me, the, the smart metering program is kind of the, well, you know, we talk about households, but it's obviously data that we're collecting along the grid. We're making our entire grid smarter. You know, the opportunity that we have to use that data to manage our systems in smarter ways and I just want to add one more thing to that, Becky, and just before Jeremy, you come in, is that I think we're not, we're, maybe underselling is the kind of word, misselling is maybe a bit too strong, but about w- the value of these smart meters. Because the smart meter, in my mind, the primary role of it is to provide that data that Becky's outlining, which can then help the network companies, the system operators, the energy suppliers, for the, 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 the sector figure out where they need to reinforce networks, where they need to add additional generation, where where we're maybe not making the most of local consumption of local generation. And actually, the system benefits, the system savings of getting to net zero will be substantially reduced with that data. Now, and that's about a kind of system socialized 
cost benefit versus an individual, I'm going to go into a time of use tariff and, and benefit personally. So your, your take, Jeremy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So lots to say. So I think that there are, one of the challenges is that we are talking about lots of different kinds of data. So let's use the word resolution. The in-home display, which is connected to your electricity meter, that's going to give you near real-time data. That's going to tell you in 10-second increments how much energy you're using at a time. Your in-home display will give you the same amount of detail about your gas use in half-hourly blocks. And that's because the gas meter is a sleepy device in that it actually goes to sleep and wakes up every half hour. And Sounds it, like a dream. <laughs> I know, I know. Although it does it 48 times a day. So like if you have a very young children, then you might, um, yeah, yeah, you might sympathise with is. a gas meter. But aside from that. Um, <laughs> Never got that bad, but close, yeah. So, so you're so you're getting half hourly readings from your gas meter and you're getting 10 second readings from your electricity meter now that's fantastic if you want to see if you want to turn things on and off you go around your house and you go i'm just going to turn the toaster on and watch the dial go up i only have to wait 10 seconds and i can see that it costs me an extra 37 pence an hour or 80 pence an hour whatever it is to run a toaster and that gives you a sense of how much your tea and your toast and your lights and then all the baseload stuff of your fridge and computer are, are using and how much they cost you. That's terrific, but it's not necessarily changing your life. Can I just give two little vignettes or examples of how a smart meter might change someone's life? Uh, or be sort of be influential. But then I want to talk about what you were saying, Becky, before about low voltage visibility, which is the absolute holy grail. So the example that we always used in the early days was the heat or eat decisions. And there really were lots of people and, you know, there were there were lots of tests of this and, and lots of focus groups. And the benefit of the smart metering program at the in the early days, some people couldn't believe that they could act. They were now able to budget to the extent that yes, I can give my child fish fingers tonight. Like I can afford that because I know exactly how much I've got on my meter and I know how much I've got left. And the, I mean, obviously horrible to be making those decisions. Um, and I say this as someone who has a child. My parents made heat or eat decisions when when I was three years old. So I get how difficult that, well, I don't personally, but I have some experience of how difficult that must be. The empowerment that a smart meter gives you that allows you to budget within a week is just can't, can't be overestimated. What I would also say is sometimes it works the other way. So I have this story that there was some black spot mold problems in a public housing development. And they went and there was like obviously excess child morbidity and all the rest of it as a result of this black spot mold. And they said, why do you have this problem? Just turn your extractor fan on when you have a shower. It's not that difficult. Oh, but it's so noisy. It must be really expensive to run. I don't want to use that. So with an in-home display, you are able to demonstrate how many pence it costs to run that extractor fan, it's not much. Sounds worse than it is, perhaps. So they they were able to address that black spot mold problem. So those are two ways that a smart meter is empowering to people. And uh yes, absolutely. We can do more, Matt, to 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 sell that. Lots more to say about that. But low voltage visibility is absolutely the holy grail for smart local energy management. The challenge is a smart meter gives you 10 second increments of information to your consumer access device. The postman of all this information 
is a body called the DCC, the Data Communications Company. And they don't open the envelope any more than the postman reads your mail, but they do transfer the data from your smart meter to your energy supplier, and then they transfer signals back again. That's what they do. They're just a postman. They do that to your supplier twice a day. That's not very many readings. And so you've got this issue where you've got different actors in this space need different granularities of data. And someone who's managing a low voltage network at a very, very high resolution might need it every second or two seconds or half a second. And we don't do that. One of the reasons, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the reasons that the data only goes to the supplier at the frequency you describe, well, probably a couple of reasons. Firstly, is the supplier doesn't need it more frequently than that. That's right. But secondly, yeah. you know, you could imagine this if you're sending mail. If you're sending two letters a day, it's a very different volume of mail than if you're sending a letter every second. And my understanding is that we would run into bandwidth issues if we were trying to transmit the data that frequently at a national scale. Is this where... For a smart energy system where we need that high frequency data, where we need that data maybe every second to manage it. You know, we've talked about that in the home and we've talked about it on what could be referred to as a national scale because our suppliers are national entities. Is there something in the middle where, you know, local meets smart? Is this why smart energy system management has to be local? Oh, that's a good question. Um I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I think so, that smart management needs uh, different resolutions of data depending on what you want to do. And what we are doing for the most part in the UK is we are working towards a system of 48 schedules a day. Mm. So we already have this in industrial... AKA half hourly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we already have this in industrial and commercial metering. We have something called half hourly settlement, which means every half hour you settle your books, you you pay your debts, you buy in the credit, whatever. You make sure that you've settled. Now, other countries have different settlement periods. Mainland Europe does it every 15 minutes, for example. But what we're doing in the UK is we are now moving towards something called market-wide half hourly settlement, which is we're extending that half hourly settlement to residential properties as well. So by 2025, you will have the potential for like across the board, everyone should have access to this. Any energy supplier will be able to offer 48 different tariffs a day. And is this is this akin to the tariff that like you get those different price signals? So you don't just pay one price for energy or one price during the day and one price at night, but it's changing all the time. Mm. Is that the kind of half hourly that you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. So I think um, static time of use tariffs have been around for 50 years, haven't they? Like economy seven, was that a 1970s thing? Before my time in this country anyway. So, but a dynamic time of use tariff, one that is responsive. Yes, absolutely. That's, um, that's what we're talking about, about here. And I just want to kind of maybe echo the point I was making before, which is about, so we're talking about the value of data or energy data at a very, very focused and low spatial level, i.e. household. Household, that granularity of the data is at the household. Now, when I speak to the the network operators, the distribution network operators who, using Becky's analogy, are kind of, you know, manage the capillaries of the system or to use a kind of transport analogy, the A, the B, the C roads, not the motorways, that's the, trans, uh, that's the transmission system. But they're increasingly concerned about where will electrification happen the most and the quickest? Also, to what extent will these homes have microgeneration, but also storage, things get complicated where your electrification becomes your storage and can act like microgeneration. Good example would be vehicle to grid, where your car can draw power, but also discharge back into the grid. And they need data. So, so the past is always a good indicator of, of future performance. So they kind of need this data to be able to plan 
what the system might look like in 2030, 2040. Because when you start to make those investments, you've got to plan years ahead. Is this sort of hidden, for the, to the consumer's eyes, you and I, mm. a hidden value to this data? This is why really, or a big part of why we have smart meters in our homes. Is, is that a fair statement or am I way off? Yeah, I think absolutely that's, that's, a, that's a fair statement. Uh, it's very difficult to put a a value on that. So for my sins, when I was with the Department of Energy and Climate Change, one of the last things I worked on before I left the department was the full business case for the smart metering program. And uh, we did not include a monetary, as I remember, as I recall, we didn't include a monetary value of the digital transformation or the digital transition in the full business case. So we justified that program on its own terms, in the sense that energy suppliers will have to spend this much rolling out meters and other metering equipment, and we will see customers saving more than that on their bills. That's the justification for the program. But obviously, there is a strategic case as well, which is smart metering is an absolutely essential and, in my mind, overdue upgrade to the energy system of this country. So, you're, you're absolutely right, Matt. And it's funny because when you were asking that question, I thought you were going to ask me about forecasting, not for 2035. Mm. I thought you were going to ask me about forecasting for tomorrow or next week. Well, I, I, and this winter, and this winter, that will, that will be very important. But I think what, what, when I, the, the conversations I have with the, the distribution network operators tend to be, you know, they, they, they want to only dig up the road once, not twice or thrice. Oh, uh, sure. Or, yeah. you know, that, the consumer who is paying a network charge um, to be connected, if they want to electrify their vehicle or electrify their heat, you know, they damn well want to do it. And and they should, in the context of net zero, should be allowed to do it. Now, if if we if we don't have the data to underpin these forecasts, um, I'm talking medium to long term, but your, your point there about short term is going to be really critical this winter. I mean, I don't know whether you want to venture into that those murky territories, but if, if margins are tight, are, are kind of is a smarter system going to help us from brown and blackouts in the fullness of time? I, I don't think it necessarily does it in the terms of, well, I can forecast what's going to happen in three months, because you don't need a smart, a smart meter to know that. You can just look at the papers and, and, you know, or you know what you did last year. But what you're talking about here with the granularity, I hate that word, the resolution of data per household, that's why we need aggregators. So aggregators take that data and they say, I am going to make this available for a street or for a neighborhood or for a city or a town or whatever. And one of the things that does is it anonymizes it, which is great for data protection. But the other thing is it puts it into useful parcels that can actually be used by low voltage or other voltage levels, network managers and operators, so your system operator, to be able to make those decisions. And then where we will be shortly, where you begin to be able to disrupt the normal use of electricity by pushing people using price signals to use electricity at other times. And what where you're going here, because you want to, you clearly want to talk about value, and that's I want to talk about value as well. What it doesn't do, hopefully, is just move everybody away from charging their car at 6 p.m. when they get home from work. If you just moved that, so everyone went, right, well, I'm going to charge it at 2 a.m. What you've done is you have, that's peak shifting. You have just taken the peak of electricity use and moved it. And if you have a very high peak, no matter whether it's at 6 p.m. or 2 a.m., it doesn't matter, that's how much generation you need. And that's bad. So what you want to do is you want to do peak shaving, which means where electricity is being used less, where there is more excess electricity on the grid or where there's excess generation or whatever, you want to use more. And where there is a peak of electricity use, you want to use less. So you are flattening the hills and raising up the valleys. It's very biblical, in fact. So I want to I want to challenge a couple of things, and I want to I want to dig into this a little bit in a little bit more depth because this concept of peak shaving or, or flattening the the load profile when you're looking at an aggregated level 
makes a lot of sense in a world where we are reliant on generation from things like coal or nuclear, which are can be typified through this kind of uh, stable generation profiles. Baseload. Baseload. We're moving, some might argue, we've already moved and we are continuing to move into a world where the sorts of uh, generation that we're going to see, we're going to see more wind, more solar. And that's much peakier and lumpier load. So unless we are, sorry, peakier and lumpier generation. So unless we are going to be heavily investing in in storage, is that still the case that we want to be peak shaving? And this is where I, I think we dive into this question of value. And you said something at our Energy Rev Summit back at the beginning of September that really interested me. A lot of time we talk about smart local energy systems and the value that they can bring. And so I'm going beyond just smart meter data, but thinking about kind of the broader changes that we're seeing on the system, data is undoubtedly one of them. We often talk about the value of that in being able to manage our networks locally more effectively. And this kind of potential value stream or deferred costs of networks. And you said something at the summit that that made me take pause, which was that you said you didn't think that the value, that that would necessarily be the case. You thought that there would be a huge value in the generation that we didn't need to build. Yeah. And so as we start to talk about value, and this is a very messy, complex system, like in some ways, are these two things competing? Because if we have generation that is, you know, when, when we've got a lot of it, we want to use it, which kind of goes against what's best for a network, which is a much kind of flatter load. So are we in a, you know, how do we balance these two things out? Sorry, I'm I'm for clarification for for listeners, Becky, when you say, so in terms of avoided costs, understand, you know, not building wind farms or nuclear or gas, you know, uh, but also on the network, you're talking about reinforcement, avoiding the need to connect in that new generation or to reinforce existing lines to take additional supply or, or load. My position is not uncontroversial. So I'm not going to say that I am absolutely uh, that I'm not going to say everybody agrees with me, and I'm I'm not saying that there is no value in avoiding grid upgrades or network reinforcement. What I'm saying is that that grid upgrade and that network reinforcement will probably have to happen anyway if we are going to increase our electricity use between now and 2050 by at least 70 percent net zero using energy more efficiently, using less energy, means using more electricity. So our electricity use will go up. And that's because we are electrifying lots of things. Two big things in particular, one is heating and the other is road transport. So where we used to use petrol and diesel and where we currently use petrol and diesel, we will soon use electricity. And where we used to use natural gas and other other forms of, of heating, we will electrify those as much as possible. And because of that, electricity use will go up and there will be need for more infrastructure. So we can't avoid that in total. We can delay it. And by having a more flexible energy system, we do see a benefit. However, the real cost savings from what we what i'm just going to call flexibility okay by having a responsive flexible grid that can shave the peaks so peak generation is lower and so you can shift load to meet generation requirements having that will absolutely save us money especially there will be wind farms we don't have to build There will be a nuclear reactor we don't have to build. There will be coal mines we can close earlier. Can I, Matt, just before you come in, can I just maybe just for your listeners, just to be very, very clear about what I'm talking about when we're talking about flexible, responsive energy system. At the moment, the way things work is you actually, like, it's it's already quite a flexible system. We have incredibly clever people who have forgotten more about this stuff than I will ever know, who are very, very good at looking into the near future and determining what the demand will be. So what we have at the moment is grid managers who 
amend or alter or like change the generation of electricity in order to meet forecasted demand. And that's what they do. They go, okay, well, I know it's going to be cold tomorrow, so I'm going to make sure there's more of that on the system. The electricity system of the future is exactly the opposite. Instead of changing generation to meet forecasted demand, we are going to change demand to meet the generation we have. And that is so exciting. Now that's that's a really good way of 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 kind of summarising it, and and listen, Jeremy, we're, we're we're very nearly out of time, so I just wanted to to end, I think, on I know we could talk on forever on this. We may have to get you back, and we will. But just <laughs> talking about obstacles, so you, mm. you flagged the, the critical importance of smart, but you know what's going to stop us getting there? What what big barriers and obstacles do we need to lift and bulldoze to ensure that we are living in a smarter? energy system. So if I list the obstacles, then I'm going to start listing solutions and I don't have them. But can I tell you the three things that if we don't have enough of them, we won't succeed? And that's data, support, and integration. So if we lack data, if we don't have the right amount of data, the right quality of data in the right places for the right people, then it becomes very, very difficult to develop a business case for demand-side management or demand-side response because there's no money for it because you just, you can't do it. You don't have the, you, you, you don't have the data. You don't have the business case. You can't take a product to market. The second thing is if there is a lack of support, and this could be in terms of a significant technological upgrade, but the value of flexibility is clear. So we do just have to get on and do it. But we need more support. No one would ever accuse the United Kingdom of being under-regulated. However, we do need to make sure that there is targeted policy support for innovation in, in this space. And I would say that because I'm a business lobbyist, but there you go. And the last thing that will stop us is a lack of integration. And there's two kinds of integration here. I'm talking about we need integration between the devices and the systems and the business models and the energy suppliers and the demand side response service providers and all these wonderful people who are aggregating the data and providing solutions, they need to be integrated with the devices. But similarly, what stops us is if there is a lack of integration into our daily lives, because any project for net zero, any program for net zero that relies on goodwill will fail. We have to make this attractive for consumers. We have to make it nearly invisible, but we have to make it easy to understand, easy to use, and easy to live with. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I mean, great discussions as always. And as Matt said, we're, we're going to have to get you back on because I feel like we've got a lot more to say and a lot more to talk about. But yeah, really enjoyed today. So thank you for coming along. Always a pleasure. And uh, to everyone else, you've been listening to Local Zero. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, do go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions there. And feel free to email us, localzeropod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you all. And if you can, just take a couple of minutes to please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcast. This really helps us to spread the word about Local Zero and reach new listeners. Uh, but until next time, thank you again and goodbye. Thanks. Goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.